0: Hello, and welcome to the Overland Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Brady, and I'm here with a very good friend, Walt Wagner. Walt and I have been fortunate to be able to travel together and do several projects together, and we just happen to be out here in the wilderness of New Mexico on kind of a foggy morning. Yeah. And it's a little cold. Yeah. <laughs> so nice. we've, we've, we've tucked ourselves into the scout camper, uh, to have a podcast. Uh, we're actually out here testing a skinny guy camper, spending some time with that as well. But, uh, Walt, I've just so admired the work that you have done with the vehicles that you work on thanks. and the quality of your team and the quality of you as an individual. So I'm just so grateful to have you on the podcast today, Th- Walt. Thanks, man. It's an honor. Yeah. This content is brought to you by Overland Journal, our premium quality print publication. The magazine was founded in 2006 with the goal of providing independent equipment and vehicle reviews, along with the most stunning adventures and photography. We care deeply about the countries and cultures we visit and share our experiences freely with our readers. We also have zero advertorial policy and do not accept any advertiser compensation for our reviews. By subscribing to Overland Journal, you're helping to support our employee-owned and veteran-owned publication. Your support also provides resources and funding for content like you are watching or listening to right now. You can subscribe directly on our website at overlandjournal.com.
1: Thanks, man. It's an honor. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it really is like, it's been a long time coming, I think, yeah. you know, just finally getting to slow down a little bit and enjoy a cup of coffee and just relax and chat, you know, so exactly. Just, we've talked about doing that for a long time and finally get to the stars aligned. <laughs> we can make it happen.
0: You have learned so much, not only in your own travels uh, and your own, the work that you've done as a professional. But then also having now built so many customer vehicles through TAV, your company, that you've come away with a lot of insights that I think are really going to be valuable for the listener. You know, I also want to start off by thanking you for your service. At a high school, you were in the Coast Guard, mm-hmm. and then yep. you ended up working around nuclear security for many years. Yep. You ended up. We'll just call it that. You worked for the agency. <laughs> yeah, 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 the agency. Yeah,
1: there's, yeah. There's,
0: um, yeah. You know, we could tell you what agency that Walt worked for, but then he'd have to kill all of you. So um, we're going to avoid. We're going to avoid that. Or, yeah. or Walt actually. Walt <laughs> actually said it that may ha-
1: somebody after me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> somebody who may come after him. So we're going to leave it at the agency. What led you to decide that you were going to stop doing that work and start working on vehicles?
1: Having just done this kind of travel my entire life, just taking what I could scrounge up and build a rack for a little samurai, you know, put a canoe on. And you had a samurai? I had a what, 87 uh, tin the, top you samurai. You just got
0: even cooler. It's <laughs> <Just> like somehow <laughs> it was, Walt just got cooler. I love tin top samurais. That
1: was my, I might as well have been a five door 110. Or and aren't they like a hundred
0: grand now if you try to find oh, one? Man. They're like so expensive. If you can
1: even drive it. such an amazing little rig. They are rad, And it was that was my first four-wheel drive vehicle and how cool was that on our little test drive the thing spun a rod bearing and it broke down <laughs> on us and it was like the guy came down on the price a little bit so we just fixed it in the driveway when I was in the Coast Guard I drove it from Philadelphia to North Carolina back and forth that little thing you know because I could just get down on the beaches and just see the family and stuff so it was that thing had been everywhere you know and it was just such a good little truck and and a tin top too man. yeah it was a little tin top you know so I was like I was in heaven. That thing was so great. Even before the Coast Guard, we lived down in Wrightsville Beach on a sailboat and we were just on the beach all the time, you know. So we'd yeah. Get around on the North End of Carolina Beach, South South End of Carolina Beach, and it was like that was our little escape, that was our little mini safari. Yeah. You know? And just back then you could camp on the beach. You had a bunch of dunes, you know, to kind of hide out of the wind and it was like uh, the escape from the crowds down there, you know. So lo- having a little four wheel drive was was awesome, you know. That little samurai was the the best thing ever. That's actually my first memory of desiring a vehicle,
0: of lusting after a vehicle. I don't know how old I was because they, because samurais came out like mid eighties, right? Yeah, wasn't that about when they first started coming out yeah, to the like U.S.
1: Samurai like two or something like I can't remember like the designations, but there were some pretty old ones too that that were. Like even smaller, yeah. Know, I can believe that—that's right. But, but I mean, yeah. as
0: far as in the U.S., when they sold yeah. them in the U.S., I think they started in the mid or mid to late '80s. And I remember I was my dad. This was before I could drive, and my dad was taking me to school, and we were on the freeway in Southern California. And here's this motorhome, and it's pulling
1: a samurai, a samurai behind <laughs> it.
0: Awesome. But here's yeah. the thing: like my dad says, I've always wanted to get one of those things. And when you hear your dad say that, yeah, you're like, and I'm looking at it, and I'm going. Yeah, dad. Like that's the coolest (laughs) damn thing. Cause like when you're a little kid, it's like, it's like the ultimate car. It looks like something that you looks like your hot wheels and it's getting pulled behind this, this RV. And I, and I remember that, that, that memory, like it was yesterday and it was probably the first time that I ever really like lusted after a four wheel drive. And that's why I think I still want, want a Samurai. It's why I drove one across the Silk Road. I mean, it was a Jimny, the newer version, but, uh, so you started off with a Samurai and you started off living in a sailboat. So you want to talk about the school of hard knocks of minimalism. Mm -hmm. Like what did you take away from having to travel out of a vehicle so small and light?
1: It was, um, because I was into riding, I raised BMX and stuff at the same age, you know, growing up and, and, and surfed Like we grew up on, on the ocean our entire life. You know, we had surfboards, a little bit of dive gear, you know, our bikes and stuff like that. So I had to find a way to carry it all, you know, and, and to just take us to where we wanted to go. And we always looked at our cars as in our family, like we had Volkswagen Beetles, you know, and my dad did the same thing. We just take the family and throw our junk in there and just go camp and stuff, but the car was the tool to get us there so we could carry our equipment with us. Yeah, And we just made do with building a little rack or, or whatever in storage. That was just how we grew up learning how to do that kind of stuff, just to carry our own mess around. Yeah, you know? sure. And then, so with the Samurai, now I'm having to cover great distances. The roof is otherwise empty real estate for, you know, for equipment. So then roof racks come around and. Uh, and you have to, you have to run them so light on yeah, a Samurai. Uh, yeah. Everything's
0: got to be extremely efficient and light. And. Yeah, um, well, center of gravity. And then what I found with the Samurais, as soon as you put stuff on the roof, they struggle that much more on the highway. Yeah, Because of the wind resistance.
1: Yeah. The thing couldn't get out of its own way anyway. Yeah. So, you know, by regearing the diffs for a little 31 or 32 inch tire. Sure. It did much better. Yeah. but still everything's wind resistance over yeah. 55 miles an hour. Or so it worked, you know, You know, kid with no money, you yep. know, it worked out great. And, and like being on the sailboat, a good friend of mine growing up, his dad had a sailboat. They, him and his two, two brothers, him, his, his parents, a family of five, like us, they grew up on that little sailboat. It was a 32 foot Coronado sailboat. Yep. They sailed it to the Bahamas and all around and came back and lived out at uh, Southport over there. And we just became really great friends because my two younger brothers and I we were all the same age. And as we got older, you know, they had, or had their house and stuff, still had the boat. And I was like, well, I wonder if we could just rent a boat or something. Let's all go in together. So Josh and Josh and I, we, you know, we all kind of pulled a little bit of money we had and got the freshwater tank resealed and did some work on the boat and sailed it to Riceville Beach and uh, just kind of. We did some work on other boats, you know, scrub boat bottoms and stuff in the yacht club, yacht harbor there, and just kind of earned a little bit of a living just so we could be on the water. That's you know? awesome, so Walt. Just learning how to be efficient in our own little ways and learning things. How long did you live on the sailboat? It was it was probably maybe six months or so. Yeah, it sure. It was after high school and I was waiting on getting into the Coast Guard and stuff. Yeah. And Josh was able to get in a little sooner than me because I have plates in my arm and a big old fat book at MEPS was like, <laughs> says right here, you can't go in if you have permanent plates or screws. And, and I was like, well, you gotta be kidding me. Right. So yeah. because of that, we were just kind of waiting. So we lived on the sailboat and we fought it. We fought that. And well, my mom did, she wrote our congressman a letter you know yeah. and they changed it they let me go back in and before you know it i was headed to boot camp and and then rest is history so but that was like just growing up on the water wanting to stay on the water which is why we wanted to get in the coast guard because we could be on the So i wanted to do heavy weather search and rescue and law enforcement side of things and that was the drive behind it so both josh and i did that and just at a young age and josh is your brother yeah he's my younger brother so you and your brother were both in the coast guard together how cool was that we're trying to get into boot camp together but he was just you know he was a little bit ahead of me just for the wait time but but yeah it was it was fun you know because we we can relate on that even today you know and that was just kind of getting our adult life started and But having a nautical background, just growing up, you know, really helped out a lot because it it just teaches you things. For me, I'm a very mechanical thinker. So it's just a mechanical way of going through life. It is. Tying knots and how, you know, mechanical things work, even on a boat. Uh, And they're so similar.
0: It's amazing. It's amazing when I was doing the Pacific crossing in Kailani, the sailboat. You know, it's like it's a Victron. You know, on there, yeah. you know, it's a, you know, it's a, it, like it's you know, battleborn batteries. It's like it's the same stuff. It is. Yeah. It's the same stuff. And you know, Garmin navigation, Garmin yeah. systems on there, and so it, I felt really comfortable, even yeah. though I was a little bit seasick at first. Yeah, I felt really comfortable in the environment because everything looks so familiar. The familiarity of it. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, and and that's that's what works so well in the expedition industry is is it's got to be vibration proof or weatherproof waterproof dustproof all these yeah these robust systems you know and in the ocean you've got salt and corrosion in different ways yeah you know and sun you know you've got all these things that can happen differently you don't have the high frequency vibrations but you do still
0: have impacts right depending on the sea state mm-hmm. man it's amazing how stuff can get jarred
1: on a oh, boat yeah it's it is it's everything is always in motion yeah 100 of the time it, whether it's calm Everything's in motion yeah. in every direction. Yeah. So learning how to how to stow gear and and even cook underway, you know, it's just a different way of doing things. And but then when you look at this industry, you can kind of take you can, there's a very good crossover to all of that stuff. And that was just where where we were brought up and what we wanted to try to see that if we could offer something just a little bit different in this industry, just with with our my background that kind of led into the, the later background, which was an immense amount of driving. Both in a tactical setting, but then tractor trailers, any kind of vehicle. Yeah. And there's a lot of crossover there. And even in the Coast Guard, that's where a lot of my really complex recovery started because I was running a crane on a buoy tender and running, you know, the pulling a buoy up out of the water. Well, the ship is moving. So you're running cross-deck winches, compound poles coming up and in across at the same time with on a moving ship. You've sure. got these different joysticks in front of you, literally running a cross-deck winch with this one, coming up with a crane over here, and then running the other one with my chin to try <laughs> to get the cross-deck to pull this way. So you're doing all of these things at the same time while watching a spotter. Wow. Because a spotter can see on the deck what you can't see running a winch control, which carries directly over to four-wheel drive vehicles.
0: It does, and learning and, to trust your spotter.
1: Exactly, and yeah. it's one of those things that is so very important when you're driving an off-road truck or or anything, you know, and understanding how traction works and understanding how certain simple concepts work that can be overcomplicated very easily in a recovery scenario. Yeah. Uh, because you've got all these immense amount of tools to your disposal, well, which one do I grab first? You know, well... Well, can I just back up, you know, let's start just there first. Like, why am I stuck? Why am I here? Yep. You know, and it's a lot of folks want to just get get a little hyped up because now they are not in complete control and and they're really feeling really, embarrassed. You know, everybody yeah. wants to jump in. That's yeah. Right. Yeah, they, yeah. They may feel embarrassed or, or whatever the case may be. But they, or
0: they may feel nervous that they're going to get stuck worse. And yeah, right. you see it. People will they'll start to get bogged down. What's the first thing they do? Go to the floor with a throttle. Yeah. Now they're so they just whiskey throttled it. So now. <laughs> What was something that they probably could have backed out of. Yeah. Now yeah. they're stuck. Yeah, you're right. Like start off with, can I, can I back up a little bit? Or even before you even start to move, you just back off, you get out. First of all, have I aired down? If I haven't aired down, I'm going to air down right now. Right. Do I have traction boards with me? Yeah. Um, let's get the traction boards underneath the tire. Cause what'll happen is they'll get nervous and then they'll, then they'll put it in reverse. They'll try to get out. Now they're dug in even deeper where if they had just stopped, And reassessed. Yes, exactly. Let some air out of the tires. Let's uh, dig out a little bit from behind the tires so that you don't not have this ramp you're coming up. Let's slide in some traction boards if you've got it. And then the next thing you know, you're out. Yeah. And it was no drama. Yep. Uh, But if you just if you just whiskey throttle the thing, now you're up to the frame. And you're digging like and you, you become, got you become a YouTube video. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I think it's it's kind of just learning how to think it on a process through something like that, you know, and understanding the tools that you have and understanding when to deploy that and yep. and understanding the risk that comes with every one of those tools that you use. <laughs> like you said, you may have to go through where you just got stuck at. Yeah. but If you can stop before destroying the, the environment you're in. Whether it's sand or mud or whatever it may be, if you can just stop, reassess, and be like, "We need to approach this differently," then you give yourself that opportunity to do so. Yeah. But you have to have gone through that first to understand that that's what it takes to to get yourself out of a scenario like that, or a group of people through through or out of a scenario like that before you even get into it. Like we yeah. know we're gonna have to winch through this this spot. There's a huge boulder here that we can t- we can go to. We're going to have to get everybody through here. So we don't just destroy where we're at and tear up the trail or tear up the trucks or whatever. Yeah. Learning all of that, a lot of that stuff in a very different environment on the water on how, how being complex and, and trying to solve a problem by overcomplicating it, like with all these different compound winching devices, that was a very necessary tool to use for what we were doing. Yeah. So that was common practice, but we did, you didn't always have to do all these different things to pull something out of the water. Same thing with mooring up a ship, you've got basically a kinetic rope that a ship is tying to appear in several different points mm-hmm. because of wind pushing one way or something like that. But that kinetic energy is there for a reason, because, and that thing can stretch like in a, a really, really long ways. And there's danger zones that you don't want to be in. That's right. And there's a, that is a good tool for that. We literally took our small you know, inch and a half or one inch, depending on which boat it was, when the Coast Guard would get rid of some of those mooring lines, we had to throw them away. Well, you can make recovery rope with that.
0: That's down. what a bubber rope is, That's or any of those. What it is, <laughs> yeah. What we call a cur in our industry, kinetic <laughs> energy recovery rope, is is typically a, a dynamic mooring line. Yep. Like on my sailboat, I have mooring lines that I use that are dynamic, yep. so that the boat isn't getting jarred constantly mm-hmm. in the because you know the boat is is in Arizona. We get monso- heavy monsoon weather. And it can get really kind of whacked around oh, yeah. in, in the slip. So yeah. you've got to have some give yeah. around
1: that. And for pulling sure. from all the other angles too, you know, right. supporting all sides. And it's just like that with, with your four-wheel drive vehicle. you know, yep. It's way more forgiving and you've used the right way and attached the right way. It's an extremely effective tool. And a lot of people don't go to that or they go to the wrong thing, like a chain or something like that, you know, and you're destroying other stuff. Learning all that stuff at a young age, you know, and applying it and seeing it in a very dangerous and real-world scenario just started to pave the way for some of that stuff. I can
0: see. I can see. Well, and that's one of the things that I wanted to talk in the podcast today. Is one of the things I've really noticed about your projects is that you focus on reserve capability. I think that as as travelers, as overland travelers, and the more remote we get, and the more unpredictable the terrain is that we travel on that we have to be mindful of, do we have reserve range? Which means have we considered how much range we have? Can we get back if the vehicle has a mechanical problem or if the trail is completely blocked and we have to go back the direction that we came? A lot of people will think, do I have enough fuel to get from point A to point Z? Mm -hmm. But what happens if along the way, the road is completely washed out or like what just happened in Southern Utah where they had these incredible floods, um, which not only blew out roads completely, or the rivers were so swollen, there was no way to cross them. So you could make it eighty percent of your way to point Z, mm-hmm. and you have to turn around and come back out. So do you have enough enough fuel to do that? And now the now the conditions have gotten so much worse. Yeah, and the road's blown out, and there's water on the road. The wa- the rocks are now wet mm-hmm. and muddy. Do I have reserve capability as well? Does yeah. the vehicle have enough capability to get me through these kinds of scenarios? And then the last thing, of course, which is the reason why I want to talk with you a little bit later about, about full-size trucks, is reserve capacity. Is the truck, is the vehicle right up at the limit of its payload, which means you're on a trip with a couple vehicles, one of them breaks down. Now you got to load it up with extra people yeah. and extra gear. Are you now way over payload, or does the vehicle that you have have enough reserve capability? So what what inspired you to begin to start building, because your trucks are unique, like they're uniquely yeah. TAV. Like you, yeah. <laughs> when you see them, you know that it's something that Walt and his team put together. And it's yeah. cut, you guys have really pushed the limits on this performance side of things. What inspired you to build trucks that way?
1: Because I don't like to run a piece of equipment at its max capacity. Mm. Because if you do need to rely on that thing to go above and beyond, that you, you want to be able to get that. You don't want to feel like you're constantly at its limit because you don't want your equipment to let you down. And that goes with anything you're carrying. Pretty much just wanted to look at a stock vehicle and what is expected of it. Sure. So when we when we put gear on a truck, we're adding weight, we're going to add people, we're going to add water, things like that, that will change throughout that trip because you'll go through supplies, you'll go through water, you'll go through fuel. As you're driving, the truck will get lighter, but then you're going to have, you're going to, laden it again with fluids which become very very heavy you know fluids and it's moving weight in a lot of cases you know it'll move around if you you don't have good balance certain kind of ballast or you know in tanks but and roof loads and stuff like that so i try to think about i try to put it in a backpacking perspective if you're physically going to wear something put a 40 pound pack on and go walk with a pair of flip-flops on over rocky ground and then (sighs) cover that same distance with a pair of hiking boots on you as a person are more efficient you know, or you're going to start less chances you know, of injury. Exactly. The rest of you is going to be more efficient for the long haul. Well, your vehicle the same way. So if we can address engine output and horsepower in a responsible way without modifying too much of the OEM reliability of that vehicle, then we try to look at that if it's needed. It's not always needed. And where you live too, or where you're traveling too, It's you know, out here, you could be pulling heavy grades on the highway at altitude. Well, you're vehicle naturally is less performance oriented that way. You're losing a lot of horsepower and things like that.
0: That's the craziest thing I've noticed about electric vehicles because we've started to test the electric vehicles. They could care less if you're at 11,000 feet. Exactly. (laughs) like That Rivian goes zero to 60 in 3.5 seconds at 11,000 feet,
1: (laughs) which is just
0: unbelievable. But it's also like the camper we're in is on top of my, my GMC and it has a three liter turbo diesel. I could not believe how enjoyable it was to drive in the mountains of Colorado or like right now you and I are at Mm 8,500 feet. How much of a joy it is to drive something with a turbo or Mm -hmm. supercharger.
1: It's like, it's just so much easier. It it is. And it's easier on the rest of the truck. It's easier than on the rest of your, your equipment. Yeah. A lot of times you tell people that we're running a supercharger and they're like, oh, I don't need that. I'm not, I'm not racing this thing or anything. Well, that's not what we're doing this for. Yeah. And I think that's what's confusing because when you look at like our Tacoma, that is a, a very complex independent front suspension, long travel, racing component list under that truck. But we're not building pre-runners. Our spring rates are very different. The valving is very different. Mm-hmm. It, now the truck does handle speed far better than i expected it to Mm -hmm. but the truck has to be balanced right for that and we're carrying equipment that balances a truck because there's a lack of space to put things in very different than what a pre-runner would be Mm -hmm. and but it's the strength of the component the serviceability of the component and field fixability of the component that's under that truck but like the kings that are on that thing i can rebuild that shock on the bench and it's not if you know how to do it, it's not as complicated or, or painful as people may think it is. Mm-hmm. But that is such an important aspect of making that thing handle correctly at speed on the highway, down a dirt road, or even just sand. Because you need composure under heavy compression. Like when we were in Baja, you've got to climb a real long dune. Well, in the middle of that climb, first you're going from gravity pulling you straight down and you're pushing that momentum into a transition at the bottom of a dune. Mm -hmm. So what is your truck going to do when you hit that transition? Sure. And now you're moving up, you're going to be losing speed, creating more drag through sand. So horsepower comes to play through momentum. Momentum and speed are different too, Mm -hmm. which people may not understand, but so you don't want to just hit this thing 40 miles an hour, right? You got to kind of understand, and it's okay to not make it to the top the first time, just go as slow as possible but fast as necessary.
0: Yeah, I love that old really? Land Rover you know, saying. I it, think it's it a good one. It makes
1: so much sense.
0: It does. You know, and having that long travel suspension does allow you to maintain more momentum so you can come does. into the dune with more momentum because you can handle that transition. Absolutely
1: yeah. does. And back to the backpacking thing, if you if you're standing on the tailgate of your truck, and you are in a squatting position and you go to jump off of your, ta- your tailgate onto the ground. Well, if your legs can only extend halfway, you only have that much space to brace for impact. Well, if you can extend your legs all the way, you have twice the amount of length for, to brace for impact and it's smoother on your body. Mm-hmm. Well, that's how that long travel control arms, your legs can work. It moves in a larger radius, so it has more time to brace and and dampen what's happening on the ground. So when you hit the transition, it soaks that up and keeps your momentum moving up the hill without it just driving the truck into the sand. And then that dip in the middle, your suspension will extend and then compress, and the truck can stay at a more even plane moving that momentum up and through that. And your traction is on the ground where it needs to be.
0: Yeah, because a lot of times when a traditional suspension or a stock vehicle when it hits a bump like that, you know, there's so little travel that you just get this very heavy rebound. And usually, stock vehicles are light on rebound control, anyways. Yes. So then you the vehicle bounces up off the face of the dune. Now the tires are in off the air, the which yeah. means that they're going to spin. You've lost traction. You've lost momentum. And you're and slowing down. Next thing all you know, at the same time. next thing you know, you didn't make you didn't make the climb. Exactly. Now one of the things that I noticed. About your vehicles, and I think it's important to talk about with the listener when we talk about adding performance to stock cars, is it has to be the entire system. One of the things that I'll see oftentimes is someone will put like a rate, call it a king shock or whatever. They'll put some race style coil over on their vehicle, but they've done nothing else to address the stock suspension. So they'll have they'll have the original jounces on the vehicle, mm-hmm. like rubber, you know, single-stage jounces on the vehicle or they won't upgrade the other suspension components that can be compromised mm-hmm. um, when you start to drive faster. So I think one of the keys to it, and I do see that in your builds, is that all right, you've added you know, improved damping capability. You've addressed mm-hmm. the spring rates that you need for the load. But then you'll also add additional suspension travel mm-hmm. by going with a wider track or a long travel kit. Uh, and then I'll also see that you'll run progressive jounces yeah. on there, or maybe even hydraulic jounces on some of your builds that I've seen. So that way you're continuing to address, and then you're like, all right, what's the next point of failure CV axles at those angles. So you, you run stronger CV axles. And then I notice that you'll run upper control arms that have additional range of motion so that you're not binding up the knuckles mm-hmm. and, and the, uh, and the various joints on those components. At what point do you feel like when you're giving advice to someone that's building a vehicle, how do you help them navigate through that decision process of, am I building for performance? And how do you help them understand that this is a very expensive endeavor? If you're going to do
1: it, you have to do it right. You can't really go halfway, even though we see a lot of people do that. Yeah. And, and to no fault of their own, it's, it's just, a. Uh They're going to a facility to buy a component. Well, it's the person at the facility that has to have an understanding of what that person needs. There's a lot of really great companies out there that make really good parts and components, but not any one part number out of a catalog for a suspension kit or whatever it may be is right for everyone. Yeah. And most people's needs are, can be very similar, but in, in a lot of cases, they're very different. And I didn't want to have like a, a good, better, best approach to what we were doing because I don't feel like it applies that way. I kind of wanted to set up a stage setup to where like our stage one is a grouping of components that I know work really well together and they're built, they're ordered to work together. Like we, when we order Kings and rad flows, we work with radflow too. We can do the exact spec of coilover or shock, based off of what the truck has to do. But that doesn't happen until I've spoken with that person and I know how they're going to use the vehicle. I know what they're going to put on it, how often they're going to drive, where they're going to drive, because that tells me what the truck has to do. But now the spring rate has to be correct for that. So we'll order, if it's a leaf spring, we'll order those springs specific to to what it's got to do. But then the shock internals are the shock companies get a build sheet from us on mm-hmm. what, and this is a baseline to start from because we can. If it changes drastically, we've been able to pull the shocks off of a vehicle, say a camper changes, and rebuild them on the bench and re- revalve them, and even freshen them up, wipe wiper seals, bearings, things like that, hose fittings. If we need to, you can completely build the thing on the bench, and it's there for the life of the vehicle. Sure, and it can change as a person's needs change, and. The trips change over to over time. I want to kind of initially find out how they're going to use this thing. So a stage one would be a more of a simple approach, a lighter vehicle, maybe some bumpers, weight that's going to live there all the time on the truck. But they they don't plan on having like rooftop tents. Well, even and you can even do that. There's a certain kind of balance that I don't want to go past for that particular stage. Um, but it's stock width vehicle. We're going to run no larger than like a 33-inch tire on a Tacoma or a 4Runner a stage 1 on a tundra you can run a 35 very comfortably and it it absolutely changes the way the truck drives for the good it's it's amazing
0: yeah there's something about when you, once you get to 35s on a full size it, everything gets so much easier it's
1: crazy ride quality <laughs> gets better yeah on the pavement on yeah. the pavement too like everywhere it just it's what's physically touching the ground so yeah. if that can support what is above it then it's all about support and, yeah you know, i've noticed and i've stuff.
0: noticed on the on the GMC, as soon as I got 35s on the truck, it just it does so much better on the trail. It does mm-hmm. so much better on corrugations because it's a larger diameter mm-hmm. tire. When I air it down, the ride quality improves so much yeah. more.
1: Which translates into the rest of the vehicle. It, it, really it really does. It really does.
0: And, and I think, I think that the same is true for 37s on a full size. 40s become complicated. It doesn't mean that they aren't a good choice for right. some people. I think that they really are. But it starts to get complicated because the vehicle gets so huge mm-hmm. that you can't kind of drive traditional trails with it.
1: Yeah, and it absolutely depends on the the platform that it's on, and it, yep. it's got to make sense. Yep. You know, and, and it can, it, it absolutely can make sense. It's got to be considered for what the truck has to do. Like, does. That size makes sense for for what this truck's going to be and what mm-hmm. it's going to do,
0: because it makes them incredibly capable. Oh yeah! Like if you if you see like a Prospector XL on forties on the trail in Moab, it's incredible. Oh, and air down too, it's like it's incredible yeah. where they where they will go. It's just important to remember that you have now a much wider vehicle, mm-hmm. so there are trails that are just it's going to be too tight. Um, so just kind of going into that knowing.
1: Which is a, another big thing about like the long travel stuff, you know, yeah. like the stage one is is stock width, the long travel, um, like our stage two is we'll use a Tacoma for instance, Tacoma and and Forerunner are pretty similar. It's like, it's two and a half, it's two inches wider per side. And th- that's just the components that we use, you know, through total chaos and, their arms, their control arms are two inches longer. There's a steering, a spacer that goes on your tie rod. Everything is just lengthened two sure. inches per side. So your track width now is just a little bit wider, but there's there's a lot of pros that come with that. We can lessen our CV angles. Oh, and, sure. And like, if you look at my Tacoma because yeah, the CV axles are longer. Yeah, they're longer. So it's a larger radius sure. that it moves in. So you don't have to, so when people look at lift, we don't lift a vehicle to say three inches the Tacoma on 37s is at zero inches of lift. It's just adjusted in a way to support its weight at a certain height. It's zeroed out, kind of like zeroing a rifle scope, say for hundred yards. Sure. My point of aim and point of impact needs to be at hundred yards. So you're zeroing your scope for that. And you can zero a scope for a thousand yards. Same thing with our spring rates or what the truck has to do. If it's on 33s it's zeroed at a certain natural stance is a little taller because the tire is taller and the spring rate is heavier so the truck's not going to sag under its own load as sure. much but you can have preload on a coil over the exact same amount but if that spring rate is heavier or less the truck's going to naturally stand higher or lower so we make that proportionate for the load that's on the truck the tire size that has to move a certain amount of inches in compression from stance from way it stands to a certain amount of inches of extension we want to be somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. so you have room for compression when you hit something or you have room for extension when you hit something but a lot of people with these mid travel systems it's stock width but when you preload that to get your lift yeah you have almost no if, extension travel it points your control arms down yeah. which now that radius is shortened because it can't point any further down
0: and the leverage is, on it is also very high because you, you have you have to get it to, to start to compress. Correct. You have so little extension travel, you're constantly topping out and, and the, ride, the ride, the ride quality is terrible. Yes. So yeah. making sure that you don't overlift the vehicle. Like for example, on my truck, I do plan on upgrading the shocks here in the very near future, <laughs> but it's not so I can drive any faster. I mean, I've got my house on the back of it, yeah. so I'm not going to drive any faster. I just want it to manage the load better. And I'm actually not going to add, I mean, I may end up adding maybe about 20 mil a lift. It'll mm-hmm. be about 20 mil taller. Uh, just which, which is very reasonable. Yeah, which That's, is a really small amount. Yeah. Because this truck is already two inches taller on, from the factory. The AT4 has a two inch lift. So I don't want it to be, it'll be end up being about two and a half inches of lift right. over a standard GMC. But what I do need is much better damping. And I need more fluid volume Mm -hmm. uh, because these ranchos that are on here, they just aren't working. They just don't control the load. They're fine in a stock vehicle, but I need something with firmer valving Mm -hmm. so that I can manage the load. And that's why I'm changing the suspension. But I think helping people understand that if you put an improved suspension on a stock vehicle and you haven't changed the track width, you're not putting that suspension on there to drive faster. You're putting that suspension on there to manage the load better and to be more comfortable. And if you do make a mistake as a driver, which we all, we all do, yep. Yep. Um, we all write a check that maybe we can't cash right. sometimes, and you do have a hard hit, you have some of that re- reserve performance. What I see oftentimes is, is that people will just add a coilover onto their Tacoma and they now think that they've got a pre-runner. It is the furthest thing from a pre-runner. Yeah, you know, all you've done is you've just given yourself a little bit more
1: capability when things go wrong. Yeah, you're yeah, you're exactly right. I think there's a misconception there that like, well, I've got kings on this thing, or I'm running rad flows on this thing, I can blast through whatever. Well, no, that's not. There's a lot that goes into making a truck handle itself right at speed and 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 balance and things like that and, and composure. It may be the exact same, like a king on a stage one is the same quality king as on a trophy truck. It's yeah. just different dimensions, right. you know, and some added components on, on that, like bypass tubes and things like that. But overall, it's the same materials, mm-hmm. you know, that, that make it the quality that it is, is intended use is different. I mean, a, a shock can be a science project in itself. Like there is so much I need to learn about high performance use of a, of a, of a shock. But with what we're doing here, we've, we've found a balance that works so well in our industry with like the Scout camper on one of our stage ton- one tundras that we've done for, for a client, we knew the weight that was going to go into it. But with a truck, weight can change drastically it just can. by taking it out of the bed. Yeah, the truck right. still has to handle right. Right, every truck we build has to be a daily driver. Mm-hmm. It just has to be, and because most people do use them absolutely in that way. Yeah, and they got to be safe and comfortable, and you know, on today's highways and roads. But then you want to be able to rely on that to take you out into the bush. So there is a fine line to, to walk there when you talk start talking about long travel stuff but it can be done you know and that's in the spring rates and the valving and stuff like that but like kind of going back to the good better best a lot of folks think that man i got to have your stage 3 cuz that's that's got all the best stuff on it well it's just in an addition of a component you can have a stage 1 and work your way all the way up to a stage 3 the stage mm-hmm. 3 just kind of collectively groups engine performance drivetrain which is in the gearing and that's when we can introduce lockers um, this, all of these suspension components, you know, in, in, the long travel stuff, in some cases, like on a four runner or a Tacoma, it's a new rear axle altogether. It's a Ford nine inch that still uses a Toyota unit bearing. So the speed sensors and ABS work like it should. So there's no lights on in the dash, but the diff is a much, much stronger ring gear. Mm-hmm. Much, It's almost twice as thick as a Toyota ring gear. It's, it's insane because I had a catastrophic failure over time that did not know what was going on until we were down in baja and it spit a ring gear bolt out of the housing because that's over, exciting over yeah that was a, a blast
0: <laughs> but and yeah. then it allows you to address track width at the same track time so you can to, match yeah. the width because a lot of times people will just put a spacer in the back axle yeah. which in general is not a not the great greatest it, it, solution it works in some cases in
1: but. some cases yeah if used right it can be very strong but i've seen a lot of people put like really wide spacers and stuff like on the front yeah because when they preload their mid travel system and they want to fit a 35 well i'm going to put a two inch spacer or something on the front to, because when you do that it draws your track width under the truck that's right so they try to space that back out now your scrub radius on your steering is all thrown out of whack and you're hitting all kinds of other things like on our tacoma i've got a full width ford nine inch housing but I've got a one-inch billet spacer to make the track width almost identical to the front, and I can yeah. fine-tune that. Mm-hmm. The strength in that is, I well, we put one on in somebody's forerunner and it's it's stronger than the axle it's mounted to. Yeah, like they got hit in a T-bone in an intersection, ripped the axle out from under the truck, and the The housing was destroyed, but the spacer was fine. I mean, that billet spacer, if it's the right kind, yep. is using the same lug stud that's on the truck. Sure. And but the spacer itself is a machined piece that's stronger sure. than what it's bolted. So, but if used properly, it, it's it's a it's a good tool to be used, but it's got to be used the right way.
0: And especially yeah. in the front, and that's something that's important, which
1: for we won't pe- do in the front.
0: Yeah, but, it's you know, important for people that are listening to understand yeah. what happens when you put a spacer on the front. Modern independent suspension is designed to have positive offset on the wheels um, because we want the wheels to be inside the flange. For example, when we get close to the edge of a road or we're on a snowy road and we get into loamy soil or if we get into into deeper snow, if you have a negative offset or if the wheels are pushed out or spaced out, it's going to grab the wheel and it's going to pull you into the ditch. creates a lot of leverage. <clears> that's right. There's an enormous am- amount of leverage and it's going to pull you into the ditch. Whereas if you have positive offset, which means that the majority of the tire and the wheel is inside of that flange, when you hit that soft material, it's actually going to push you away from that. It's actually going to, that resistance is going to hit that wheel and it's actually going to force the wheel and the, the vehicle out of that scenario. Um, so it's a huge safety issue when I see people running negative offset wheels i don't know i think that they just used to do that with old cjs and stuff and maybe it's a legacy of that but there's a reason why wheels are positive offset and they stick in they they push inside the wheel well like that and the and the and the wheel is very Flat and there's not a lot of of negative offset and it's a safety issue mm-hmm. and so when I see people running spacers on the front, it's one of the most dangerous things you can do. Yeah, um, for the handling of a vehicle,
1: it is. And and another thing, the tires bigger too, so you've yeah. got more contact patch on the ground, which That's is right. going to want to grab whatever's under it. That's you right. Know? And another thing too, like if somebody's going to run an aftermarket wheel, a lot of the aftermarket wheel companies, the OEM wheel is a certain width bead to bead, mm-hmm. and when they want to run a bigger tire. You can be up against your control arms and mm-hmm. physically scrubbing on the control arm on your yeah. sidewall, which is could not horrific. Good. Yeah, not good. Know? So the wheel companies, because the width is bead to bead is a little wider, like eight inch or like nine inch, some of them like 10, 12 inches deep, yeah. Yeah. massive wheels. But that's where what can change your offset as well in backspacing and all of those things. But like with Method, they Method Race Wheels, they have that bead grip technology I that, like holds that that bead, but they don't make that wheel anything different than a zero offset but you kind of have to with the width because now the bead has changed width that's true So the the dimensions of the wheel are still in a responsible range to where it's not going to want to track the way a really deep offset wheel would be especially with a larger tire it gets your tire away from your suspension components it's still close but it's not too close it's not touching
0: and it's one of the reasons why i love to run a narrower wheel with a narrower tire, Narrow tire. run yeah. as tall of a tire as I can, right. but it allows me to maintain that positive offset on the wheel mm-hmm. for safety and stability. But because it's a narrower tire, I could run it on a narrower wheel. Right. Without um, getting into your That's right. Price. I don't like to run much wider than eight, eight and a half inch oh, wide yeah. wheel. Yeah. Um, Same here. And, and there's also, even if you run a little bit wider tire, there's advantages. Now you may get a little bit of accelerated crowning and wear, but there's some advantages on running a narrower wheel. The tire is less likely to come off the bead. It also keeps the tire very narrow. Um, mm-hmm. So just just being careful not to run too wide of a wheel and being careful not to run too much offset. So you want it to have lots of positive offset, which means it's pushing it's more up underneath, you pushing it supportive. That's right. Inside yeah. of the, the, the mounting flange, uh, for sure. One of the things that I wanted to, to chat about on the Tacomas because you've built so many tacomas up if you were to talk about like let's say somebody just went out and got a 2022 TRD Tacoma maybe they at least got an SR5 so they get the rear locker um what is what is kind of the build that you would recommend for most overlanders like what would how would you address like let's say you bought one just right now and you were building it for yourself to go travel in and you were planning on drive, driving around all around a lot in Mexico and you didn't want too many too many components that you can't get replacements to. How would you build a truck like that?
1: If I was kind of new, new to that kind of traveling, or if I was kind of new to what kind of gear to use and all that stuff, I would just say put a good tire on it and go. Tire is physically touching the ground. Just put good traction on the ground and just go. You know, just put gear in your truck, your clothes, whatever kind of tent you've got, or even if you have to stay in a hotel, just go travel. Just yeah. go. Just try to find out what your what would drive you to want to go and travel if you just hate the being in the weather if it's raining or windy or whatever it's just inconvenient uncomfortable you know there's ways you can get out into nature and be comfortable but you kind of have to have your trip and your vehicle tell you what is required next
0: what's falling short and, yeah and like us this morning yeah it's crappy weather outside we're nice and cozy I, inside a hard shell yeah, camper it be windy and
1: snowing outside yep. right now but we're we're good to go yeah you know and it's, it depends on the need of the
0: individual. absolutely
1: sure. does. And uh, I think because, man, look at the little beat up little rigs running around down in so- southern Baja, you know, yep. and they, they go everywhere, you know, and you can do it. All these other countries that have just old Mercedes cars just running around everywhere, two wheel drive, yep. you know, and it can be done. And I think in our minds, we're like. I want to know that my truck can do it, whether I'll do it or not. I just want to know that it can, and there's, that can be okay, but then people can get carried away with that too. You know, we're not here to just throw a bunch of components on a truck and sell it because we can. If I built out a fully built truck for somebody and they have no budget, right. They just go, go crazy with it. Right. I've had somebody say, I want you to throw the whole catalog at this truck. I'm like, but I can't do that. Like, I don't, I don't even know what you like to do. You know, like, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me to try to build you something that i have no idea what it's going to do i'm just i kind of really got to know how they're going to use that thing and i just tell them to find somebody's shopping for a vehicle whether it's an suv or a truck i kind of try to dig into that a little bit and find out which one would be right for them and just get the trim level that they like because certain trim levels like trd pro has a certain color to it right so if you like the color and it fits in your budget Get that, get this, the seat trim you like the interior things you like, because those are things that, that we're not going to be changing, sure. you know, so get what you like there. And the TRD, let's say a TRD pro, everybody thinks that a TRD pro is just the shocks and it's not. I mean, yeah, there's, there's skid plates, there's and, skid plates, yeah. there's wheel designs, there's colors, there's trim level on the inside. There's a lot going on to it. And if they did pull the TRD Pro stuff off, they could sell that like that to somebody that's got an SR5. Yeah.
0: You it know, all bolts or, on.
1: And yeah, and then just switch it right over. Mm-hmm. So it's not a loss. They mm-hmm. think like, oh, I'm going to spend all the extra money on TRD Pro and I'm wasting it all. That is absolutely not the case. Yeah. You know, and somebody's
0: going to want the that some, fox suspension. Yeah. yeah.
1: And and so it's a lot of people have done that because they want the color of the vehicle or mm-hmm. the interior trim. And and we can build off of that. You know, it's it, the components are mostly the same. The one big difference is a 4Runner with KDSS and then, or without it, there's ways we can still make the KDSS work. If it's long travel, then we just bypass it and we do a mechanical sway bar in the rear and it handles amazingly, you know, because all of our spring rates are heavier anyway. Sure. So, but, you know, a lot of folks are like, well should I get it with or without KDSS? I I mean, it's it's all, a lot of that's personal preference, but that's, I think kind of going back to your question is, if somebody just doesn't know, or what I would recommend first is just put a quality tire on it and just get out and drive and explore and and enjoy it for that. And then put the equipment on the truck. If you're, if you're going to be putting stuff on the vehicle, I would start with whatever camping equipment you're going to use, what you're going to carry with you, put the weight on the vehicle first. Cause then you're going to, it's going to tell you immediately that maybe your shock dampening is too soft or your spring rates are too soft as you're doing that. And you're going to put a couple hundred pounds of bumpers on the front and back of the vehicle. Then we can look at what kind of weight's going to live on the vehicle. And then we can, we can address the spring rates and the shock valving and, stuff like that. So, yeah, smart. you know, it's just, it's not what everybody wants to hear because somebody buys a car, they want to lift wheels and tires mm-hmm. because it drastically changes the way the truck looks. The look can come with it in the end, if you make it work right. And I think that's, like you said, there was a certain kind of look with the trucks that we're building. We're not building a truck to be in your face and like, look at me. And this is a loud, uh, you know, approach to a expedition truck. Like I want to build it to work. Like old camel trophy trucks, old defenders stock. And discoveries and stuff. They were stock, stock. Yeah, and they had roof racks and all this gear all over them. <laughs> they were built for a challenge. They yeah. were built to navigate through certain things. Well, that's where that people started to build for a look of that. Mm-hmm. And if you continue to just build the truck to carry your equipment and the gear and things like that to work right, then that look will come with it. And it's just a harder way of getting that look. You know, getting and it's
0: that in, it's interesting how little we need when I when I started driving this full size truck. Um, and we're going to talk about full size trucks in a second, but you know, I, I had not driven full size. I'd never owned one. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to take my own advice and I'm going to do nothing to this truck at first. And I did, I drove it stock and I drove it off road stock and I towed with it stock. And then I realized, okay, it does need a a slightly taller tire. Mm -hmm. So then I went to about a 33 and I still wasn't happy with the tire diameter. And I'm like, I wonder if I can fit a 35, 1050 on there. And this this truck that's underneath us right now, it it's a stock vehicle other than the thirty-five ten fifties on AEV wheels. But I am realizing now that the rancho shocks, they're under dampened for the truck and the weight yeah. that I have on here because I'm right, I'm right at gross vehicle weight rating. Because I'm right at gross vehicle weight rating, I can't add any other modifications. I can't add a winch. I can't right. add bumpers. Because otherwise I'll be over on payload, which Mm -hmm. is something that I think is really important to stay under. So you're right. By taking it step by step and Mm -hmm. learning as we go along, we do recognize that, like first of all, we don't need half as much as we thought we needed. Absolutely. Um, And and also like all of that stuff costs money, so it takes us away from from traveling and spending money on gas and tacos and stuff like that. So yeah,
1: gas is a big issue. It is. It's expensive. part
0: of a any trip. It's an expensive thing. So, um, you yourself have started to migrate from Tacomas and smaller vehicles to the full-size trucks. Uh, what did you feel was the the motivation for you to make that change?
1: I think because we have to use we have to use these trucks as a a tool. Like we've got to do hauling. Like I've got to be able to put a truck on a trailer mm-hmm. and haul it. And when we first got the Tacoma, that was the only pickup truck we had. So we built it to support the weight that was on it. But we were usually traveling for like to set up at a show. So we were carrying way more stuff than we would normally camp with pulling trailer with gear in it, stuff like that. But I was just killing the vehicle. Like it, yeah. it, I knew it wasn't set up or designed to do that, but yeah. we had, to, it was all we had, you know, so to travel around and do these vents and stuff like that. But when we would travel to camp and explore, we were way lighter. A lot of times we'll go somewhere. We'll see something we want to bring home with us. We want to have somewhere to put it, yeah, you know, sure. and it's fun to be able to do that, you know, a piece of driftwood or yeah. something, you know, and you want to throw it on the roof rack. A lot of times our roof racks empty, like on the Tacoma, there's one Zargus case with recovery gear in it. The other side's got max tracks on it, but I can throw those anywhere. I've got real estate for my piece of driftwood. Yeah, sure. <laughs> or or anything. Yeah, you know? sure. And like on the Ram, the roof rack is completely empty. So it, it's just usable square footage that's like keeps the truck light because we're not just loading it down with stuff that we might use one day. Now, recovery gear is different. You know, there's stuff that should go with you but to a certain extent, you know, I like to plan or pack per trip because every trip is a little different. Sure. It's just what my background was. We couldn't take stuff that didn't do anything. It had to, it had to perform either our duties or our personal gear, like clothing, you know, for the Mm -hmm. trip. And that was kind of it. This is really no different. And that's the same approach I'm trying to take. Like on our Tacoma, we've got that, the Bowen custom bed now with all those compartments. Well, I think half of them are empty because I, yeah. I don't have enough stuff to put in them. I have yeah. a house battery in one for the camper, air hoses in one, and I have a couple tool rolls in one, but all the other ones are are empty. And it's nice because Yeah,
0: you, you don't have to fill up all yeah, the space. Exactly. You I,
1: really I, don't. <laughs> I think that's I think that's what a lot of people like to do because they can create there's so many good companies that make drawer systems and all these different things that create usable storage. If there's an open space, they'll fill it, you know. And <laughs> Yeah, that's the old Parkinson's law bureaucracies
0: and overland vehicles will be filled (laughs) to their capacity yeah we got to be able to to say we're going to leave this stuff at home but i i do think that we're seeing more and more migration to full-size vehicles because uh the payload Mm -hmm. of a even a three-quarter ton ram for example can be twice that of a tacoma Mm -hmm. easily and if you go to a one ton ram it can be the whole weight of the Tacoma yeah, can be exactly, can yeah. be the payload of the truck, right? Uh, so yeah. these and these these full size vehicles um, with the aftermarket support that we have now, they're more capable than they ever have been. And I think a lot of people forget that ninety nine point nine percent of trails in this country are driven by full-size trucks. Mm-hmm. What is the forest service driving around full-size? They're trucks. driving around a full-size yep. truck. Yep. When you go along the border, what's the border patrol driving yep. full? Sometimes they do drive Jeeps, Right. but for the most part, they drive power wagons mm-hmm. around full-size trucks. Yeah. And if you see fish and game out and about, what are they driving? Full-size <laughs> trucks. So there are trails, no question that are, they're rock crawling trails. They're yeah. extreme trails. And those are designed for much smaller vehicles yeah. overall. But the majority of traveling routes that we're going to do in the backcountry are designed for a full-size truck. Yeah. you may end up with a little bit more pinstriping, right. But for the most part, they'll fit, and they're not doing any additional damage to the trail because they're right. already being driven uh, by ranchers and exactly yeah. and people hunters that have full-size trucks. Um, so I think that in, in general, um, unless you need the ultimate performance of a smaller vehicle. Um, that you're probably better off with the capacity of a full size.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have migrated from the forerunner and Tacoma platform to like the Tundra or or even like the the bigger diesel trucks. Mm-hmm. You know, if they feel like they're pulling a you know, a lot of these camper trailers and stuff now these that are off road capable are they're, they're massive. They're big. You know, they're and big. Yeah, they're super nice. And Anytime you make something a little bigger, you can fit something else that's nicer in it. So people are finding that I can still get par- fairly remote and have a super nice camper. Now the whole family wants to go, well, you're going to need a full-size truck to do that and the right kind of full-size truck. So And another
0: cool application I'm seeing more and more of, Paul May from Equipped is doing this and Matt Swartz, who does some editorial contributions for us. You know They've got these high-performance, full-size trucks, like Paul's got a Tundra, Matt Swartz has got a, a 2500 RAM so they can they can pull their airstreams yeah and they've got their home with them yep. and it's super comfortable mm-hmm. they can park it in a campground but then they can unhook yep. the full size truck yep. and like Matt's got he's got a, a super pacific mm-hmm. camper on his on it's on 37s and AEV all the goodies and he can go as far in the back country as he wants, and then come back and yeah. tow the airstream to the
1: next spot. Yep, absolutely, yeah. Because a lot of people will want to carry dirt bikes, yeah, something in the bed of the truck, and that that can add weight. You know, I mean, they're they're heavy. They are heavy, yeah. Know? So they'll carry dirt bikes and and gear and people, and then you can have like a like an airstream or one of those like off road trailers. And Some of them are awesome. Yeah, I mean, they're like this past event Overland Expo uh, Mountain West was a whole row of off road oriented type rvs it was impressive you know, it was impressive. yeah it was pretty pretty crazy to see who's coming to the table now mm-hmm. with that kind of stuff and the capabilities you know and it's not just you know from australia or south africa anymore it's, there's a lot of stuff built here in the u.s that's yep. like that too in the u.s you can see very drastic differences in terrain you know especially in the four-quarter state right. you know but then you can be on both the east and west coast and see what that's like and you can do all of those things with like one of those trailers, you know. For the most part, yeah, but it's you need amazing. The right kind of truck to take you two days down I forty. That's right. To get there, you yeah. Know, and, and they're so comfortable. These full size trucks <laughs> are
0: so comfortable. They'll spoil you. man. They're just you're just yeah. like I don't know. I feel like it's a total Cadillac. I mean, it's like my. I mean, I could turn on the air conditioned seats exactly. and everything else. I feel I'm just getting I'm getting soft, Walt. I know. I'm getting, we got to <laughs> get back in the FJ. And stuff. <laughs> we got to get back in our FJ forties and give our spine an adjustment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know. Well, I, I so appreciate it. It's amazing. We were already at an hour talking oh, yeah. about this stuff, but I so appreciate the work that you do. TAV is, is a uh, very thought, you guys are very thoughtful about how you support your customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you build some of the coolest damn trucks that that I've seen in the industry. How do people find out more about you
1: and TAV? It's very important for, for me personally to be face to face. I try to get out to as many as like, we do all the Overland Expos because it's a place for everybody to collect you know, brands and then people to get together to, to be face to face with and see this stuff in person. So we try to do that as much as we can. And we try to travel like we want to see people out in the field. Social media is a huge help for a small business like us, like uh, Instagram, you know, at TAV, try to make it simple at TAV LLC on Instagram. My buddy, Matt is our marketing director. He He does a great job. He does an amazing job. And, you know, he's, he's trying to get to paint the right picture and still make it entertaining. You know, it's, we're trying, we're trying to just be as educational as we can. Sure. Um, So it's very important to have that interaction. We try to do our best, you know, it's uh, just to relate with everybody that we can, and we're always going to work hard for you, you know, and, and just try to get what you need. If it's not going to, You know, if it's just not something that we would feel comfortable doing, it's not any disrespect or anything. I'll try and get the right person involved for you on a build, but there's a very specific way we're trying to go about this, and and to keep our name attached to it, I want it to stay consistent and stay within our wheelhouse on what we're doing. You know, YouTube for us is is literally a means of just trying to educate folks on what we just did on this build, like from front to back, because that will resonate with someone. And we, Josh and I literally just did it with a cell phone and, you know, we're just trying to great. answer questions and, you know, and get that. And people seem to love it, you know, and, and it helps build us up like, okay, cool. People are liking this, so we're not wasting our time. Right. Yeah. So, because we wanted to answer the questions, but I couldn't keep up with the different places they were coming in at. Yeah, sure. So if I can just do that in a vid- quick video, you know, and Matt's trying to get that edited a little bit better to where it's not so painful to watch, but he's, he's doing a great job on that, you know, and it's. We're trying to graduate from just a cell phone you know, video, but it's really just there to get information out. And, no, you guys are and,
0: doing you guys are doing such a great job of that, making sure that people follow you on on social media as well and, and get in touch with you if they've got some questions. You know, and I think one of the things I want to close with, and it was before we we started this conversation, but, we, you know, we have both lost our moms in the mm-hmm. last couple of years. And you said something to me that I think I I just want the audience to hear. But you said that every time you hugged your mom, you hugged her like it was the last time you were going to hug her. And I think that for those that are listening, maybe think about that the next time you see your mom or your dad or your uncle aunt, whoever in your life that you really care about. Remember to hug them like it's the last time you might do that because we don't you're close to. Yeah, because we don't know. We don't know. Uh, what's going to come next. And a lot of us are traveling. We travel for long periods of time. We may not see our loved ones for months at a time. And it's just so important that we hug the people in our life. Yep. Um, like it's the last time we're going to see them.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's something that it can just be taken for granted, you know, and we, everyone just gets so busy in their yep. lives and work and travel and things like that. It's just, important to kind of rein your brain back in and hold that kind of stuff dear, you know, and because yep. uh, you can't undo it. Yeah. And a lot yeah, of us are doing this it. so we can spend time with our families that's you right. know, and, and we're, we invest everything we have in our life to be with our families. And that, that part of it is, is the pinnacle, you know, that is yeah, the that's the most why important part. It, of it is the most you know, important. So
0: the relationships that we have in our life. So thank you all for listening. Remember, hold the people that you love a little tighter next time. And uh, we'll see you out there on the trails. That's right. Thanks for listening. Yeah. Thank you.